You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. When I found out I couldn't put the record out when I wanted to, I was like, that's just what's going to happen. And then by the time it came out, the themes of the record had become so extremely urgent suddenly it wasn't just I'm a person from Hong Kong and here are some nice thoughts I had about Hong Kong it was I'm a person from a city that could disappear in the next five years that's Emily Moss a British singer-songwriter talking about April her fourth studio album it was written after her British council residency to China and a trip back to see her parents in Hong Kong. The whole experience had proven so memorable that Emma felt the pull to return to the East and live there. Barely two years later, pro-democracy protests would break out on the streets of Hong Kong. As the crackdown by the Chinese government proved more violent, Emma left Hong Kong again, this time with her partner and their 10-month-old baby. Emma herself was born in Hong Kong. She grew up in the former British colony until she was 12. Then her family relocated to England. The island had become a colony during the Opium Wars more than 100 years ago. In 1898, it was leased to Britain for 99 years. Like many British expatriates, her family left ahead of Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule. In England, Emma thought she might finally experience that belonging she never quite felt in Hong Kong. What does it mean to straddle different worlds, east and west, and never quite belong anywhere? In this episode, Emma reveals how writing April and singing in the Chinese dialect of her childhood would help her reclaim a more complete sense of self. In your a figure at the bed dressed in red like a maple leaf the organs that dictate the hour at which you the spleen and the gut indicating grief I sing under the name Emmy the Great, and my latest album is April, 
slash yum or in Mandarin yeah yin and it came out October 9th 2020 on Bella Union Barcelona to Madrid With the angels in Los Angeles All the doctors shake their heads Just can't wake you up The album was made very quickly in about two weeks and I was like, this is going to be my fastest album ever. My usual turnover is so slow. And then I ended up taking maternity leave and I was, I should have been disappointed, but I wasn't because the whole album came about after I had sort of tapped into this Buddhist philosophy about life just happening when it's supposed to happen. Shh. I just want to talk a little bit about growing up in Hong Kong for you. Just kind of take us back to where in Hong Kong you grew up and what was going on during that time. Yeah, well, when I was a kid um, in Hong Kong, it was like the final days of empire and there was a kind of late capitalist shininess you know everyone felt like life was great we went to the mall we had a lot of pop culture references we watched a lot of ninja turtles it was kind of like a mishmash of like american japanese culture and old school british people who felt very strongly about britishness because they'd been away from home for so long so i grew up in quite um like a weird a weird place you know I had a very kind of like divided sense of self because I was half like local Chinese which had a very very distinctive um still does have a very distinctive identity and then I was half kind of expat with every kind of strange sense of division and hierarchy that comes with those things so I grew up a little bit mixed up I didn't go to international school because I went to a a Chinese local school, but my family friends mostly did. So during the week, I was in this kind of quite rigid, strict schooling system where I just didn't really fit in. There was me and one other girl who were not full Chinese, but she spoke better Cantonese than I did. So in the whole school, I was really the standout person And then on the weekends when I went to see our family friends, I wasn't quite the international school kid. In either case, I didn't have the slang. I didn't have the code. So I felt like really kind of stuck in the middle. So I sometimes think maybe, I don't think I would be a musician if it hadn't been for that experience, if I hadn't gone to a local school. I feel like I really spent a lot of time self-soothing by like listening to music and imagining stuff so I don't think I would be who I am and I certainly wouldn't speak Cantonese but I sometimes think would I swap it for like a little bit more of a sense of belonging like potentially since then I've never really felt like I belonged anywhere recently like I got sent this article where Elton John was saying a list of albums that he's listening to and one of them was mine and To him, it was, oh, here's a list of albums that I'm listening to today. To me, it was, my life has just been made. When you're young, you're really into stories. 
going into pop music you're just coming out of fairy tales and his songs are just stories you know there's like benny and the jets what is that about each one is like a little tale and i think that really spoke to me I vividly remembered hiding in my room as an eight-year-old listening to Elton John on CD and drawing all these pictures of what I think of as a movie version of his songs and I would do like a poster and then it would be called Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and I think yeah all my happiest times were spent in a little room sitting at a desk looking out on a kind of very wild jungle kind of terrain we lived out in the New Territories and my mum recently visited and now it's just all buildings. My dad really used to sing the Beatles a lot. He had a grand piano when we were young and he had a ponytail. In my head, until I was about 15, I thought when I looked at a picture of John Lennon that it was a picture of my dad. The other day I was going through some old records in an attic because I haven't seen my parents for a year you know so like I was looking through some family stuff in their absence and I found this record from the winners like a 70s Hong Kong band I found out that my dad had been writing songs for this canto pop band and I found like three songs by my dad because um, on those old records they write the songwriters names on the back records were such a huge part of my life when we used to go to the mall on the weekends when we were a bit older like our parents would give us like a hundred hong kong dollars which is 10 pounds to buy cds i have a really strong memory of my friend buying the scat man song it comes on on the speaker and then he turns around and like refunds it <laughs> i bought the metallica album was the first album i ever bought the black one i was listening to it i was really young it's like the c word in it and i marched myself to my parents i was like father confiscate this album from me because it has a swear word in it and he was no it's okay you can keep it and i was shocked <laughs> You must have been also surrounded by, so that would be 90s, like Cantonese pop too, like your your Aaron Quarks and maybe the end of the Anita Mui era and like Fei Wong and, and people like that. Did you listen to them or were you like, no, I'm more interested in this music that's coming from America or the UK? I'm pretty democratic about music I think I always have been I really loved Aaron Kwok I got my hair cut like him <laughs> it was quite tragic um <laughs> on my head and I loved Leon Lai I still listen to Fei Wong all the time um I listen to Anita Mui now more than then you know because she was for like older generation like these days I listen to like Sam Huey. Mm. So when did you first sort of pick up a musical instrument and then actually start writing songs? Uh, well, my dad taught me when I was 12 to play guitar. You know, I've always written. I've always liked writing like poems, stories, plays, but songs came in my late teens. And then just as I was applying to universities, I had this kind of flash of like, instead of studying English, I think I'll study music. Um, so I found this course in London that was a diploma in pop music. In 2009, she released First Love, a folk and indie pop record that showcased her knack for juxtaposing the prettiest of melodies with sardonic lyrics. Well, you didn't stop when I told you to stop. And there was a moment when 
And I wasn't sure if the next time I saw you Out on the road I'd have something to say other than pay All of the money that you owe Her first single, We Almost Had a Baby, sees her fantasizing about how she would lord the threat of pregnancy over this fellow musician. The song seems a little mean-spirited, but it does capture the nuance of these predicaments from a young woman's perspective. Two steps forward foregrounds further this relationship and that awkward moment of copulation. In the middle of September, we entertained the thought of falling into rabbit holes and never coming out. In the garden of a girl whose mom is friends with Al and John, so she kept telling us. But still, we slipped a year or so behind ourselves. The time's already gone when people were just people, not the jobs that they perform. Our songs were just a thing we did with melodies and chords. Now you're available. All good record stores, but I knew you best. Back when love was just a feeling that ran out between my legs onto the back of my dress, onto the clothes that I was wearing. But when I was a child, I was expected to believe in something up above that no one touches or can see. They tell me that unless you're looking out of magazines, well then you don't exist. But I knew that you were real before I read it. In an interview today, before I used you as a surface, did a line across your face. In the toilet of a girl who's sitting outside dropping names like they were carpet bombs. She knows everyone, but I knew you You said you know that I can stop this anytime If you think that it is tearing Your heart gets broken and you write about the fallout for your debut album First Love with all its messy details. What was that like putting that album out? I I don't remember the exact experience but like to me those songs were semi-fiction they were fictionalized like I was trying to create this world that I could feel in my arms and legs you know I could really feel that it existed this sort of pastoral world um and I wanted that to come out and I wanted it to sound like fresh and I don't mean fresh like a new drum machine I mean fresh like the dew on grass So to me, like, it didn't feel as personal as it probably came across as. You know, I was just 20-something and, and like, it never occurred to me that you could step away from your feelings in order to write. And so when people say now, like, your your album got me through a breakup and, and they call it a breakup album, it actually makes me so happy. It's like being Tylenol. <laughs> like I made something specific that's for something specific and that makes me really happy. <laughs> Two 
So your second album, again, is about heartbreak and you were going to get married, but then your fiancé said he found God and basically broke up with you to be a missionary. It, it just like even just saying that, it seems so kind of laughable and funny. But of course, at the time, it must have been devastating. I mean, like you get that in the music. It takes a bit of a turn. You're not unlucky, you're just not very smart. These things will never leave you. They're as close as you can get. Your blueprint for the future, but you can call it fate. It's like these days I have to write down almost every thought I've held. So scared I am becoming of forgetting how it felt. And these fears they will unravel me one day, but still I am afraid. to that record once I think in the past seven years or something like I feel very much like been able to direct my music quite a lot but on that album I couldn't direct it that was what I had to make because I was so traumatized and it was my process of healing and there's one song on the album I think Trellick Tower I remember singing it and being like whoa I am so sad you propel yourself into the arms of God and Christ and all the angels now You're high above the people who You used to call your equals I will stay behind and live this life You left me as a witness Who can tidy up your business And record that someone lived here In the shade of Trellick Tower In those days of living gently Something holy used to love me Something holy used to touch me Then he heard the voice I couldn't hear He's gone to where it sent him And now I'm praying for this pain to clear He's waiting on ascension but then after the song was recorded, I was like, I'm less sad. I put it in that song. And oh my God, I never listened to that song. You know, it's not like scary anymore, but it's just like, I don't need to go to a place anymore where I feel like that. Um, but I, I would say that that album more than anything taught me that like music is healing and also like other people are healing because I, I crowdfunded that record. So while I was making it, I was meeting up with people for like these silly incentives, like let me teach you guitar or let's have a charity gig in the garden. And those people and that album like really pushed me through something that could have knocked me back for life. So it's Second Love 
about you living in LA for a bit. And I think that's when I first interviewed you. There's sort of a shift from acoustic sounds to more electronic sounds. And a, a lot of the songs also, it kind of fitted in with like your idea of what we're all dealing with, with social media and how technology impacts our relationships and loads of different areas of our lives. And there is also like a shift away from details and specificity to like broader themes. There's still like moments where you're talking about bumping into an ex and losing your social halo. I think when we were talking in my head, Swimming Pool, because of the video, I saw it as a very LA song. But then I read somewhere that it was about Hong Kong. I think what's crazy about Swimming Pool is that I wrote it in London in a tiny studio in grimy North London and didn't know that I would move to LA in a few months. You're so high You look Good time, a straight line in the sky. Jump into your blue swimming pool, and so clean, and so, so new. I reach out and touch you. Jump into your blue swimming pool like clearly swimming pool is about this lifestyle and then I was like no way swimming pool is definitely about being young and seeing those international school kids and their like backpacks and their lives and stuff and I find a lot of my music gets places ahead of me like I'll write a song and then like two years later I'll be like whoa that song predicted the rest of my life and also it's much deeper than I thought it involves childhood memories rather than you know what I thought it did and that's what I really like about the kind of privilege of being able to like write songs. It's almost like constantly uncovering stuff that you didn't know about yourself. Second Love was the first time that Emma started experimenting with singing her songs in Cantonese. When Emma's family moved to England in 1995, she had stopped speaking Cantonese in public. Then she stopped speaking it completely. In a review of her debut album, the Guardian newspaper had referred to her as an arty home counties girl. This pleased her. In a more recent TED talk, she revealed that when publications referred to her as British Chinese, 
It jarred with how she saw herself. In Hong Kong, she had been too white, and now in England, she wasn't quite white enough. In 2016, she wrote a piece for the Guardian. The headline read, "It's time to retire English's pop's lingua franca." Some of her British contemporaries were writing songs in English as well as their native tongues in Cornish, Welsh, Spanish. So the idea didn't seem far-fetched. Consider also the rise of K-pop and legions of BTS fans in the West now. At her live shows, Emma would start to sing "Swimming Pool" in Mandarin and "Social Halo" in Cantonese. Journalist, you've been writing stories about the sort of intersection again between identity and the other, the sense of whiteness and other races. And with Brexit, you've done stories about the far right. You've done migrant workers' rights in Hong Kong. Some of the themes of race and identity and belongings also brought forward into your music. And I feel like with Second Love, you had started to explore this with singing in a different language. The the language. I don't know if if I can say Cantonese is your mother's tongue. Is it your mother tongue, or would you say English? Cantonese is my mother tongue, literally. And uh, Mandarin, I would say, like I speak, I like every time I go to speak Mandarin, I like open my mouth and I'm like, I'm fluent, and then I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and so I I don't speak Mandarin, but it's like I don't I don't remember that I don't speak Mandarin. <laughs> I, when I went to study in Paris and was learning to use my French there, would always think of Mandarin and like my Mandarin is really terrible. But I would think of trying to say like a particular word, and the Mandarin word would pop into my head. Yeah, I have that with German because I learned German at school. So if I'm in Germany, yeah. I speak Mandarin, <laughs> and when I was in China, I kept saying German words. That's so interesting. Yeah,、uh, but so you you sort of explored this even more in April. So you have mid autumn where you can hear the Cantonese. I, I mean, I I don't understand what was being said, but it was like being in a, a Wong Kar Wai movie. <laughs> I was just like, oh, you know, it sounds so pretty. I grew up 
speaking Cantonese and English an equal amount. And then when I moved to England, I shut Cantonese out because I had to fit in. And it was almost like I felt that Cantonese marked me out. It was going to tell on me or something. So I've suppressed it. And I just don't think that you can suppress a part of yourself forever. You know, like at some point, it's just like you said, certain languages belong in a certain part of your brain. And if you're not speaking them, you're not using that part of your brain. So I felt like I was, it was like an uncontrollable, I'm quite limited. Like I, I mostly write in English, but every now and then the song feels like it ought to be in Chinese because I think in English most of the time, but I count in Chinese because that's what my brain sounds like. And, you know, we live in a, a world that is extremely challenging and Like we have a lot of limitations. Why limit your music? You know, why not just have that as a space where you, which reflects exactly what you're thinking and who you are. You know, there's sort of like a real embrace of other cultures right now where for so long, especially in America, it's just been so kind of mainstream and the multiplicity of voices just never came through in music or pop music the way it is now. Why were you interested actually in learning Mandarin and getting that better fluency yeah well okay so this is what happened I got a residency and just before I went they were like what do you hope to get out of this trip and I like flippantly said I want it to change my life ha 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 and then coming out of the trip to China where I discovered this Buddhist philosophy I stopped over in Hong Kong and I went on a blind date with my partner and yeah one year later, my life had completely changed. I think I regularly will remind the people at the British Council, I'll be like, I said I was going to change my life, change my life. And they're like, yes, Emma. So I was on my way back to New York, but I wanted to visit my parents. And my parents' friend had been in China and we'd gone to a matchmaker as a kind of fun experience, like a tourism experience. And She'd been like, you know, that matchmaker makes a lot of money. When we get to Hong Kong, I'm going to do you want a match for free. And I was like, whatever. Okay, fine. You know, like, it's good to say, yes, I've just been doing all this Buddhist philosophy. So I'll just go do this thing. And then I ended up living back in Hong Kong. I ended up living in Hong Kong next to my parents, which was in Hong Kong, I felt I was more in touch with Chinese culture. And it's like the one thing I really miss is the obsession with family that that suits me. I like it. It makes me feel safe. And then a year later, I lived next door to my parents and it was really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was also like a beautiful experience. (laughs) It's a double-edged sword. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So this kind of uh, brings us to, why did you call the album April? Well, I arrived in Hong Kong mid-autumn moon. And I stayed, I've kept writing for four more moons. So in Chinese, four moons is say you, which is also means April. So like I really wanted to hide a lot of meaning. This time I didn't really want to put my heart on my sleeve. I wanted to, um, I felt that so much of this was so intimate that I wanted to hide it. So there's just a lot of hidden stuff. I did make a glossary the other day in case anybody needs a little bit of decoding. <laughs> There's a real joy in listening to an album and trying to plot its narrative, to make sense of its lyrics. During the pandemic, a song like Your Hallucinations can take on a whole other meaning. 
All the doctors shake their heads. Just can't wake you up. But Emma had written it about an earlier, altogether more troubling time. Now the world you see is red. I guess, like in simplest terms, it's like someone's foray into microdosing. <laughs> um, it's kind of like looking at it from the outside. A lot of people I knew while I was writing, it was 2017 and the election had just been, everyone was very anxious. A lot of people I knew were suffering from insomnia or anxiety. And um, there's this Chinese thing of if you wake up at a certain time every night, it's to do with a certain organ. Mm-hmm. You know, like in autumn, like you might wake up at a certain time because of grief, which is to do with the liver or the lungs, stuff like that. Some people I knew were self-medicating the anxiety with lots of different things. And I think that's what that song is about. You know, we're all a bit lost. We're all scattering now. We're all saying goodbye to each other because things have gotten dark. And, you know, I'm sort of waving goodbye to you in the middle of your hallucination and... Will I be a hallucination? Will this time be a hallucination? It was a really difficult year, I think we can all agree, 2016. <laughs> oh, it was terrible, the trembling Back when the leaves were turning brown But then we made it through the year A little laugh, a little tear A little note to say you're leaving town And in our silent times we wonder Were there lessons that you'd learned from the last three albums that you took um, to the making of April? First of all, it was like, like you say, it, was, it only took you two weeks. Yeah, loads. I mean, making Second Love was really a long, long process. The first two albums, I think you can tell, flowed very quickly because I was young and I was expressive and I had very simple tools. And then I got to this point, I'm never going to write another breakup album. That's just ridiculous. I'm going to be the most broken up with person alive. I don't want to use an acoustic guitar, but I don't know what else I want to use. For Second Love, I had to write hundreds of songs. I mean, that's an exaggeration. Maybe a hundred songs. I had to learn to use different things, keyboards like Ableton, just trying to change things up so that I could be, I could be interesting to myself. But it was really hard to push through and learn all these things. But by the time I got to the fourth album, I'm fluent in these tools and I know what I like and I know what I don't like anymore rather than having to try everything. So it was like a gift after all these years of not being quite in control of my tools. Now I am. Are you going to stand there all day?
like a tennis game Like a wedding day In a picture frame In a picture frame I was married once, did I tell you that? He wore white and I wore black And when they took his body away I thought that's a shame That's an awful shame I would have liked To see him again But I'm a writer now and everything is sunny I put down all these words for the money Here's something we could do After the sort of prologue into the album, you begin with writer. I liked the song melodically, but also the way like it's, is it like a meditation on, on your role as a writer? Because you've been writing uh, for plays, at TV shows and for radio. And also in that song, you, you talk about, you know, writing for money and you can write yourself into a song, into a story. And I was wondering whether that's what you were doing when you said once you were married. And I was like, did you get married? <laughs> you know? um, but where was your head at when you wrote that? Yeah, that song is from the point of view of a much older writer who's, Mm. you know, maybe like has written a lot of pulp fiction or romance novels or something and is like lost the plot of what's real and what isn't. And I put it at the beginning of the album because I really wanted to sort of say the rest of this album is mostly fiction. But like the way that things are going with my songs. So there's one song, Hollywood Road. Mm hmm. And in the Chinese bit, I'm like, after four moons, everything changes. And as we discussed, like four moons is also April. Mm -hmm. And so basically I was singing after April, everything changes. And in April, I found out I was having a baby, you know, like things in my music just seem to predict my life. So I've, I've often thought maybe I'm going to move on from music one day and write romance novels. And one day I'll be this person rambling at my desk being like, oh, I think I was married. I'm not sure. <laughs> Or maybe that was a story. That would be a cool thing to do. <laughs> Everybody had their babies When we drove up to your old home I still thought I needed saving So I snuck off to be alone Alone This one's jungle landscape You have got to watch the cars Here our parents dreamed of escape Now all their dreams are ours Ours I stood by
April is a lush and inventive album. Several of its songs have a sprightly indie pop jangle. Like Emma's own search, it travels, taking us from New York, where she was living when the album was written, to more far-flung locations. It's also a sonic postcard of the places and memories she holds dear. In Okinawa Ubud, she uses sound design elements from film or fiction podcasts to places right at the heart of her songs. You hear traditional Eastern instruments, field recordings, morsels of words in Indonesian. Where once her concern was to portray typically English concepts and pastoral settings, in April the things that take center stage are Chinese superstitions, a moon goddess, a laneway in Hong Kong filled with the chatter of fortune tellers, an active volcano in Bali sacred to its people. It's so interesting to hear all the different sounds. First of all, is that a, a gamelan that is in the music? There is gamelan, but there's also a bamboo organ. It's just like a mega huge organ that's played by like five people. When we were young in Hong Kong, Asia felt very small. There was a lot of kind of free travel. Um, and we had family friends in Bali that I went to visit again after that China trip. And he just had a baby and he took us out up into the mountains and I was recording all this stuff and I was also thinking like you know I inherited this friend he's my parents best friend's son and then now he's got a kid will I have a kid will they become friends also I inherited Bali from my parents this was where they used to go in the 70s but now I come here and my head was just whoa generations and change and time and the recordings of that trip became the basis of that song there's a very important volcano Mount Agung it's very magical and it it has a presence and I did feel like I'd been traveling for a very long time and I'd gone to this place to see this very old friend and we had been next to this important mountain and I had sort of reassessed my place in the world and realized everyone is sad everyone suffers everyone climbs a mountain everyone exists and I sort of came away from that trip feeling quite peaceful and I think that feeling made it into the whole album What is the Okinawa bit of it? Is that as in Okinawa or temple or Japan specifically that you were referring to? Okinawa is the scale of gamelan. So is the Okinawa scale. And um, I just like the fact that, you know, you would think it was about Japan. But also the song is very influenced by Japanese Hawaiian music, big band music. That music really intersects with Balinese imagery from the 70s and stuff so I feel like 
all these sort of like mishmash of influences and ideas just sort of fitted together in a way. That's so interesting about the scale. It's not something that I knew. The idea of those um, old musical songs like South Pacific and Bali High, you know, this perfect imagined Paradise Island, which, you know, is quite a trope. But in those days, that music was very evocative of this kind of like unobtainable paradise. April is a reflection on time, home, a sense of place, and how that changes as we grow up or grow older. It sounds like you also really kind of fell in love with Hong Kong again. It's laneways, it smells, it's like there's something about it that seeps into the music. Did, Did you go back thinking you would fall in love with Hong Kong? Towards the end of the China trip, I realized that I was really getting on well with the people there who was, who spoke Cantonese. Like I was, I was like, whoa, I'm really quite fluid at talking with these people. Like, do I miss Cantonese culture? When I went back to New York, after all those stops, I was going to Chinatown all the time and talking a little bit too mm-hmm. long in the shop being like, there's someone be like, do you want a bag? I'd be like, no, I don't want a bag how are you doing auntie and so I realized I had to go back and I had the most incredible month in Hong Kong that first month you know the whole city just opened itself to me in a way that it never ever did before and it never did again it was just like it was a dream it was like being in a, a Wong Kar Wai dream scene Where have you been? All of my- This dreamlike moment when you're falling in love, of endless possibilities, when a whole city comes alive, it was captured in the album. But after having her baby, she found it hard to find her place in Hong Kong as a new mom. Now that can be a challenge in any city. But with the protest and the crackdown, Emma realized it wasn't the best time for her to be there. So when I found out I couldn't put the record out when I wanted to, I was like, that's just what's going to happen. And then by the time it came out, the themes of the record had become so extremely urgent. Suddenly it wasn't just, I'm a person from Hong Kong and here are some nice thoughts I had about Hong Kong. It was, I'm a person from a city that could disappear in the next five years And here is a a record of some of the final moments of that city. So, you know, 
it was um it was really hard putting it out because I had since the record was made I had moved to Hong Kong I had lived there during the protests as they began and um left again and so it was really really hard that it came out but I think timing wise it it did actually come out at the time it was supposed to and what about that sense of belonging it's what I was looking for when I was making this album. I was like, I'm going to tackle this ultimate question. And of course, I found a sense of belonging. I have a child, I have a partner, and wherever we are in the world, that's where I belong. I feel a sense of fulfillment. But I think in terms of wherever I go, be it a supermarket or a party or a gig, I've always got a little bit of separation. You know, if someone's like, hey, you come here. I'm like, who me? You know, that kind of feeling. (laughs) So it's good to know that, I think. And I think, you know, that's what I discovered by writing this album as well. It's like, I was looking for a sense of belonging. It brought me back to Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong and I saw firsthand the kind of social and cultural divisions that turned me into someone who will never really belong. So what I've actually got is more of just an acceptance of that what does um, being a songwriter mean to you? Why do you write songs? It's like a crossword for me. Like I have to find another way to rhyme this word. And that's what gets me going to write songs. And that's why I love Paul Simon, you know, like, because he has the album, I, Here Comes Rhyming Simon. Maybe he also just really wants to put words in pairs. I think to me, songwriting has become like, it's become this greater thing in my life that I didn't expect it to be. It's it's like a kind of healing, it's therapy, it's like communing with myself. And it's also, it's become my, it. it's my, yeah, for lack of a better word, it, it, it is a craft. It's like, here I am sitting down with my tools and I got to pop another one of these out. And it, there's something very, grounding about that like this is it's just what I do now you said you're never going to be the artist that sells out arenas why do you think that I always was so interested in people that I saw in record shops that I hadn't heard of I think it might be like this kind of hard mindset of being an outsider I'm so interested in being behind the scenes but still in the culture. I find it really quite thrilling to know that I might have contributed to this greater culture, but in this kind of sideways Mm -hmm. way, you know, like in a lateral way. I think it is because I have never really been able to say I am this or I am that. So how could I say I just wasn't built for that, I don't think. Did you ever kind of wrestle with it? Were you ever at a point in your career, even when you were starting out, just kind of going, well, this is the kind of songwriter I want to be. I want to be big. Yeah, my favorite artist when I was starting out was Diane Cluck. And I'd found out about her because she'd handwritten 100 CDs and put them in um, uh, other music in New York. So I had this like role model who was very, very underground. And um, I remember having like meetings because in London, it was very easy to get an A&R meeting at the time because of MySpace and they were all looking for the next thing and people being, do you want to make a hit? And I was like, I want to make 10 albums and then I want for the 10th album to be the one that everyone listens to. I actually, sometimes I look back and I'm like, 
that kind of conviction like I'm really pleased that I had that young because I haven't always had so much conviction I think there's something about being that young and I was just absolutely sure that I wasn't going to make a hit album (laughs) it's a really weird thing to say (laughs) to a record label. <laughs> I think you've mentioned that it's with the pandemic, it's kind of just a decimation of the, the live music scene and touring and income and people's livelihoods. I think you said it was like important to remain creative and like laugh with your kids. And, you know, we're all around our kids all the time and it's actually a really hard thing to do. So what does it mean for you to be able to put out music at this time? I think I was lucky that my album got put out this year because I was forced to focus on something, you know. And also because, like, we were very lucky as a family that my work got pushed to this year because I'm very, very fortunate to have had work this year, you know, like to have played a gig, to have made it through without something catastrophic happening. So for all sorts of practical reasons, it was really lucky. But when the Fiona Apple album came out at the beginning of lockdown... That was the first moment in weeks that I was like, life is okay. And from that moment, I I really, really realized how much music does mean to me. It isn't until you find it hard to get through the days and you're putting on an album that you love, or even I've been listening to a lot of BBC Three, which is classical music, just to have music on. And I realized how soothing music can be. And so putting an album out in this year has just felt like, it's like my way of giving back everything that music has given to me. Like I feel really good that in October I slotted a little bit of music into the world, you know. At this point, give me all ambient. All I want from music is for it to make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been so lucky as well because you were one of the rare artists that got to get up on the Barbican stage and play to like a hall of people and was that like because they must have had masks on and things like that as well the barbican was selling i i don't know what the percentage was but it was like a crazy low percentage of tickets so everyone had seven to ten seats between them and people were wearing masks like when i first went on stage i was like oh this is weird because usually when people clap you get a wave of energy but here like you're not getting one wave it's in little pods and um but then I I saw this one guy had a face shield on and he was sitting alone. I was like, someone put a face shield on and came out in order just to see us play music. And like, it was like, it was the best gig I've ever played in my life because it was just like, first of all, we've all been released from being parents today. You know, we're allowed to be musicians again. And second of all, like these people, I'm actually crying. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they went through so much to get there. And um, it was, it really was like so, I felt so lucky. I felt like it was a dream that it had happened at all. Um, Yeah, and like, again, it's just another thing that's made me realize how, you know, I can't be flippant about music. It really, um, it really helps, you know, it helps. There's more to life than New York City As I climb 10,000 steps up to the temple I begin to believe that this journey Would be easier if I wasn't so literal 
You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Emily Moss or Emmy the Great. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azain Sumeri, with graphics and media by Jenny Woodward. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you liked this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. When we achieve weightlessness, we'll fly into the air like chocolate. Look down on the beam to the places that we've been. You once told me about the moon And the first man to walk on her How they came to love the view Of the oceans without water They keep on searching for a Chinese queen Couple of salesmen trying to ship Cells from this dream. Where have you been? Where have you been?